going to look this morning at Romans 8, 9 through 17. And you'll find that on page 944 if you're using the church Bible. And as usual, I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open, reading along with me. And let, let me pray for us this morning before we come to the preaching of God's Word. Father, again, we come to you and we, we beg you that you would feed us, that you would fill us with all of the riches of the glory of what we have in Christ, that you would give us grace upon grace this morning, that you would open our ears and that you would open our eyes and that you would give us an understanding heart. Lord, you have said, as the rain that comes down from heaven and waters the earth and makes it bring forth and bud, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which proceeds out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but shall accomplish the purposes for which I sent it. And so we pray, Father, that you would accomplish your saving purposes among us, that you would soften every heart, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would enlighten our minds, that you would renew our wills, and that you would, above all things, make us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, Paul says, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are on the flesh cannot please God. And now our text. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, over the years, Anna and I have remarked at different times and in different settings about how um, oftentimes children who have been adopted start to look and act like their adoptive parents, not just mannerisms and things that they say and what they like, but even their physical appearance at times seems to conform to the parents who have adopted them. And there's something, there's something that happens in, in a home where God has brought an adopted son or daughter 
and he unites them together and all the fears that somehow that child is not as much a child as a biological child start to go away because the child is conformed to the image of the parents in many respects. We've actually told friends of ours to whom that's happened that we thought the daughter or the son was looking like the mom. And they would say, you know, lots of people tell us that. Something unique and something wonderful that seems to be happening in adoptive homes. And I think that's a helpful illustration for us, especially as we look at what the Apostle Paul is going to talk about here when he talks about the Christian having the spirit of sonship. This Paul has sort of waded us into this subject. You almost don't even notice that he's brought us into it. We're, we're reading along, we're reading about justification, we're reading about how we died with Christ to sin's power, how we've, we've had both the guilt and the corruption of sin in our lives dealt with by faith in Jesus Christ. He's then told us about that battle, that ongoing battle where we, we, we're still battling with the, the presence of sin in the life of the believer. And then almost imperceptibly, Paul sneaks and shifts into this subject of the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, and he does it in the most nuanced and subtle of ways, and there are so many layers of what Paul is actually doing here theologically that a quick reading of Romans chapter 8 would never yield for you the depths of what is actually there. And I believe that one of the overarching things that Paul is pressing in as he continues to talk about the, the, the sanctified life of the believer in the world is the role that adoption into God's family plays in conforming the believer into the image of the Son of God. Paul's going to do this. He's going to draw this parallel. He's going to say, you have the spirit of sonship, the spirit of Christ, and then later in the chapter, he's going to say that God is conforming us into the image of Christ. So it was the spirit who was in Jesus who now indwells believers, and the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, now dwells in believers, and he is the one actively conforming us and making us look like the Son of God and like God's children. And so everything from Romans 8, 9, through 17, and I would argue even the rest of the chapter, really deals with what difference does adoption make in your life that you have been adopted into God's family, that you have the spirit of the son within you, the spirit of adoption within you. And Paul is going to argue, and this is so important to get, Paul's going to argue throughout the rest of this chapter, not only is the spirit making God's people holy, not only is he the one by whom we are able to put sin to death, but that one day he is going to raise our bodies up and we're going to realize the full adoption and we are going to look like Christ and we are going to look like the children of God, not only spiritually, but even physically. Paul is going to move through this whole chapter and the goal, the ultimate goal is the spirit raising us up. Notice what he says. Notice how he says this in verse 11. In verse 10, he tells us that our body is dead because of sin. We'll come to that, what I think that means. But notice verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And notice then he goes on, and we'll see this next week, that he goes into a whole theology of adoption and resurrection. And that what we are even now waiting for is the, the resurrection of our bodies so that 
the, the full glory of being adopted into God's family will be realized and perceived when that happens in our lives and we'll be freed from the body of sin and corruption and we will be transformed just as Jesus had a transformed body. I want us to see this morning three things. First, I want us to consider the indwelling of the spirit of the son. Secondly, I want us to consider the leading of the spirit of the son. And finally, the witness of the spirit of the son, the indwelling, the leading, and the witness of the spirit of the son. Well, notice there in verse nine, Paul has um, already brought us into this, into this world in which we realize that all men and women are either in the flesh or in the spirit. You are either in Adam or in Christ. You are either in the flesh, dead in sins and trespasses, in your old unregenerate nature, or you are in Christ, alive in the spirit, living in the sphere of the spirit, living in, uh, in life and peace because the spirit is in you, in contrast to living in death because you're in the flesh. So we said that last week. Everyone is either in the flesh or in the spirit. You can't, you can't transfer from one to the other. God has to bring you from the flesh to the spirit through regeneration. But you live in one of those two, and our lives show which one of those two we are. Do you think about the things of the flesh? Do you think about the things of the spirit? Paul's introduced that. But notice what he does now in verse 9. He begins to talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, that was the only verse we took this morning. I could give you a whole theology of what it means that God indwells his people. The Bible says that you are the temple, the church is the temple. And when God came down in the cloud, the glory cloud, and filled the temple and the Shekinah glory indwelt the temple, that that was prefiguring the Spirit of God coming down, that Christ pours out the Holy Spirit on his people, that we are filled with the Spirit, that the Spirit lives in us, that God comes and makes his home with us. And Paul almost in a throwaway verse says, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God indwells you. And then he says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, Paul does a couple things here that are very interesting. First, he says that if you're not in the flesh, you're in the spirit. And how do you know if you're in the spirit? Well, the spirit dwells in you, the spirit of God. Notice verse nine, he calls the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God. And then in verse 9, he calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. And then in verse 10, he says, if Christ is in you. Notice that transition. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, if you have the Spirit of Christ, if Christ is in you. Now, let me say this, and this is very difficult theologically. Paul is not blurring the distinction between the persons of the Godhead. He's not saying... There are not three distinct persons. Jesus did not become the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did not become Jesus. God the Father did not become the Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not become God the Father. But in the work of redemption, and this is so much deeper and more profound than probably any of us realize, in the work of redemption, because of Jesus receiving the Holy Spirit from his, uh, in, in the virgin birth, all the way to his resurrection at every point is a fascinating study. If you ever want to read a helpful chapter, Sinclair Ferguson 
has written a chapter called The Spirit of Christ. It's the absolute greatest explanation of what we're going to consider here about the indwelling of the Spirit of the Son. That in order for you to be indwelt by Jesus, in order for you to have Christ in you, in order for you to be adopted into God's family and filled with the Spirit of Christ, Jesus himself had to be conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit coming upon her as he did, hovering over water at creation, bringing forth new life. He brings forth the Lord Jesus Christ in the womb of the Virgin. And then his public ministry at 30, the Holy Spirit comes down upon him and anoints him as prophet, priest, and king. And all of the illusions of the new creation from the flood account with the dove coming down on the ark and Noah coming out into the new creation. And Jesus is bringing about the new creation through his work. And then the next thing is the Holy Spirit takes him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil as the second Adam to undo everything that the first Adam failed to do and to be the true Israel. And he overcame in the wilderness where Israel failed by the Holy Spirit. And the rest of his ministry is a ministry in which Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit sustained him even until he gets to the cross. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that by the eternal spirit, Jesus offered himself without spot to God so that on the cross, the Holy Spirit was there and Jesus had been filled with the spirit through all of his life. And then Paul, as if to say, if that's not enough for you to understand the greatness of what you have, let me just talk about the spirit's role in the resurrection of Jesus. So from the conception to the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is at work in the Son of God, enabling him to complete the work of redemption so that you can then have that work applied to you when Jesus in his resurrection glory ascends to the Father and he has the Spirit in the fullness of the Spirit so that he can then pour the Holy Spirit out on all his people in all of his glorious power and he is formed in them. You know, it's remarkable. Though the Holy Spirit and Jesus are two distinct persons in the Godhead, yet in the work of redemption, it's as if they're one and the same. Jesus actually says, my love I give you, the Spirit will give you my love. My joy I leave you. The Holy Spirit will come. He will give you joy. I am the truth. The Spirit will lead you into all truth. Jesus says, I am the comforter. I'm going to send you another comforter. I'm the helper. I'm going to send you another helper. Helper. And so what the Spirit does in the work of redemption is he glorifies the Son and he applies the finished work of Jesus Christ to all of God's people by coming and indwelling them. And here's the amazing thing, and do not miss this. It was necessary for all of that to happen first to Jesus before it happens to you, and then when you've experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you are experiencing in part what Jesus experienced in the days of his flesh, and you will realize the full goal of the indwelling of the Spirit. Notice, notice what Paul says, verse 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, it's a big if, because he's not in everybody, Right? That's very clear. There's a lot of ifs in these verses. You need to be examining yourself. If anybody doesn't have the Spirit, he's not, Christ is not in him. 
But if he is in you, if the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the end result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is that one day you will experience bodily resurrection and you will be made into the image of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John can't even explain this, but he says, we know we're children of God now. We have the spirit of the son. We don't know what we're going to be, but we know that when we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. So, so the apostle John says that one day believers, this is, this should be your great hope that you don't have to go to the gym anymore and still gain weight and hate your body and hate the sin in your body and hate everything else that's decaying and corrupting and corroding and, and, aging and passing away and you don't have to grapple anymore with the sin that you just keep living in and you keep struggling with and that you hate if you're a believer but that one day god is going to raise you up and you're going to have a glorified body like jesus by the same spirit that raised jesus from the dead um paul can't even seem to find adequate illustrations to explain this in first corinthians 15 he is groping for anything and he says it's sort of like how one star differs from another in glory so is the resurrection body and like a grain falling in the ground and then becoming something else but it's still the same thing but it's glorified and it's it's amazing and and you're going to be conformed he says in first corinthians 15 he says that that the life-giving spirit who is Christ in the work of redemption dwelling in you is going to give life to your bodies and is going to glorify them. That's the goal. Notice this. Notice this. Notice verse 22 of this chapter. Paul says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Great verse for Mother's Day. The creation wants to give birth to the new creation, and it's groaning. So all of creation, it's not what it's going to be. It's going to become something new because of what Jesus did in his resurrection power. And notice, notice verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I want to ask you this morning, do you ever think about that? Anyone who is indwelt by the Spirit of God is groaning inwardly, waiting for that day of freedom from this body of death, for that resurrection glory and the adoption of sons. That's, that's what a Christian feels inside. They don't want to be what they are right now, even though they are vastly better than what they were before they were in Christ. They want to be what Christ has for them, what the spirit indwelling them is going to do for them. So, so we have the spirit of the son indwelling us. Every believer has Christ in them. This has massive Im implications. Secondly, for what Paul tells us about the leading of the spirit of the son. I said many, many months ago, and I looked for this quote and couldn't find it, but William Still had a very powerful quote where he said, every time a believer sins, we are bringing Jesus into that sin with us. Every time a believer sins, we are bringing Jesus into that sin with us. Um, 
I heard a theologian recently say this. I had never thought of this. He said, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, I believe, that if a man goes into a prostitute, if a believer goes into a prostitute, that he is bringing the Lord into that sin. So the point is that it's impossible for someone indwelt with the Holy Spirit to, to say, okay, Holy Spirit, I'm going to put you over here and I'm going to go do this thing over here for a little while. That's not how it works. You can quench the Spirit. You can grieve the Spirit. You can, you can sin grievously against the Holy Spirit. You can sin against Christ. But if he indwells you, it is impossible for you to, to say, I'm not going to be indwelt for a time. I'm going to put the Holy Spirit out of me and then I'm going to go over here and sin. You bring, we bring him into sin with us. And so what Paul wants to say, and this is the point of the flesh-spirit battle the Bible's always talking about, what Paul wants to say is that, praise be to God, the Holy Spirit is greater than our sin. We have died with Christ. And one of the things that the Spirit of the Son does is that he leads us in paths of righteousness. There's a lot of debate about the leading of the Spirit. People will go to this verse. Many, many Christians have gone here and they said, well, are you led by the Spirit? Do you know what it is to be led by the Spirit in some sort of mystical, the Spirit's leading? And Paul just clears that right away. Notice what Paul says. Paul says in verse 12 that the leading of the Spirit of the Son is his leading into holiness. Notice this. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if you live in the, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So Paul is saying that one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is he is always leading the people that he indwells to pursue holiness. He's always leading them to pursue holiness. Um, clearly, that doesn't mean that we don't sin. But it means that we hate. We hate our sin. We hate it so much, we want to mortify it. We want to, in the great book, John Owen, The Mortification of Sin. That's not a word that we, don't, we use today. We want to murder our sin. We want to murder it. Um, one of the most powerful thoughts I've heard recently, um, Sinclair Ferguson was um, reflecting on this passage. He said it's impossible. He said if you want to know, if you want to know how heinous your sin is, you don't go, you don't go to Mount Sinai to see where God condemns it. You go to Mount Calvary where He deals with it. And he said, it's impossible for you to stand at the foot of the cross and say, my Jesus, I love you, and I love you, my sin too. It's impossible. That's an impossibility. So all of us are either love sin or we love Christ. We're either in the flesh or in the spirit. If the spirit's in us, he is helping us to mortify that sin, to put it to death. Because when we see what it costs the son of God, how can we not say, my sin, I want to be rid of you. I want you out of my life. How can we not say that? How can we not want to put sin to death if we see what it costs the Son of God to pay the debt before God to reconcile us? How can we look at what Jesus Christ did, mocked, beaten, bruised, bleeding, crown of thorns on his head? How can we not want to put every sin to death in our life? Another great quote I heard recently, if 
if you're going to be willing to put one sin to death in your life, you have to be willing to put all sin to death. So none of us can say, well, yeah, this is bad. I'll get rid of this, but I'm going to hold on to this sin. We can't do that. If you're going to be willing to put one sin to death, you have to be willing to put all sin to death. And I think, notice Paul gives us this big general statement, doesn't he? He says, he says um, in verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Listen, nobody, I want to say this as carefully, but as forcefully as I can this morning. Nobody in this place will go to heaven if you are not mortifying sin. None of us will go to heaven if we're not putting sin to death. You will perish eternally if you are not putting sin to death. Now, you're not going to go to heaven because you put sin to death. You're going to go to heaven because Christ indwells you, because he died for you, because he paid the debt for that sin. But every believer who has the spirit of Christ is called to radical mortification of sin. I'm going to tell you as your pastor this morning, this is the most challenging and sobering teaching in all of the Bible. And every one of us has to give ourselves wholly to asking the question, am I putting sin to death in my life? Owen, in that famous quote, in mortification of sin, be be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. If you are led by the Spirit of God, you are someone who wants all sin eradicated from your life. Now, we know that that's not going to be a reality in the now. That's the tension and the struggle, isn't it? We know that it's a process. We know that it's happening more and more. Hopefully, it's happening. God convicting. God helping you understand who you are in Christ. Even now, you knowing, I'm, I have the Holy Spirit, Christ dwells in me. How can I embrace any sin? How can I diminish the heinousness of sin? I want to read a really amazing quote to you from B.B. Warfield, the Lion of Princeton. Um, Warfield said, If we consider our new life of obedience from the point of view of our own activities— we may speak of ourselves as fighting the good fight of faith. So if, if I think about what has happened to me in redemption and now I'm called to live an obedient life, we, we could call that, as I do that, we could call that fighting the good fight of faith. He says a deeper view reveals it as the work of God in us by his spirit. When we consider this divine work within our souls with reference to the end of the whole process, we call it sanctification. When we consider it with reference to the process itself as we struggle on day by day in the somewhat devious and always thorny pathway of life, we call it spiritual leading. I love that. Basically, Warfield's saying, when we come to understand that, yes, we are to put sin to death, but it's only by the Spirit of God at work in us, he's doing it in us, and that as it happens on the day-to-day basis, as we wrestle with the thorny struggle in life, That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. And so we've seen this morning already we're indwelt by the Spirit. Secondly, true believers are led by the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of adoption. And I would just say at this point, too, that's true of all Christians. That's not true of someone who has some mystical experience and that they can then 
somehow look down at you and say, well, you haven't had the experience I've had. If you're united to Jesus, you are indwelt by the Spirit of the Son. You are being led into paths of holiness by the Spirit of the Son. Um, Warfield actually makes this very interesting point in his sermon on the leading of the Spirit. He says, it's one of the saddest effects of extravagance and spiritual claims that in reaction to them, the simple-minded people of God are often deterred from entering into their privileges. So what he says is, when people come along and they say, well, I've attained to this spiritual experience up here, that what that does is then people that haven't had that sort of mystical experience up here overreact and fail to realize all that they have, all that they have by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul wants you and me to know all that you have God dwelling in you. Thirdly, and finally, the witness of the Spirit. Notice that the question would arise, I think, quite naturally, that if I am to put sin to death, I'm to mortify sin by the Spirit, and yet Paul has said that there are things I do that I don't want to do, and there are things I I don't want to do that I do, in Romans 7, that I have that indwelling sin, the question arises about the issue of assurance. Um, There are some... I think in the reform world especially, who would almost make it their goal to try to convince everyone that they're not a Christian or somehow think it's a mark of piety for a Christian to struggle with assurance, as if God is somehow trying to convince you he's not your father. Um, There can be an introspection, really subtle, especially in some Puritan circles that that mistakenly almost make it a mark of piety to say, to, to say that you need to struggle with assurance. But notice what Paul says here. And we do struggle with assurance, but notice what Paul says here. Paul says in verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So God has given us the spirit of his son, not only to indwell us and in order to raise us up and glorify us, he has not only given us the spirit of the son to lead us in paths of righteousness, but he has given us the spirit to bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God so that we can cry out from our hearts, Abba, Father, just like Jesus did in the garden of Gethsemane. When as he pressed forward, looking into the cup of wrath that he had to drink for us, he said, Father, he said, Abba, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And on the cross, the first and the last words that he spoke were, Father, forgive them. And Father, into your hands, receive my spirit. And there is no greater blessing. Let me say this this morning. There's no greater spiritual blessing that we can have personally than to know in our souls that God is our father and that we are his children. There is no greater blessing. I perish the thought that my sons, though I am very sinful, I perish the thought that they would ever not cherish the fact that I love them as their father. That is a unique privilege that God gives believers by putting the spirit of his own beloved son in them. Think about this. The spirit who indwelt the Son, who heard from his Father under the glory cloud on the, at, on the Mount of Transfiguration, 
You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And who heard at his baptism, this is my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. The son who perfectly gained the father's acceptance as the God man for his people gives that spirit that was in him through his whole life to his people so that they know they are accepted in the son. And so the spirit bears witness, not by some sort of warm, fuzzy, uh, inner voice saying, you're a child of God, you're a child of God, but making you know and love the son who is accepted, who dwells in you and knowing that he, he dwells in you now and that you will dwell with him and, and that you pray for a greater outpouring of that spirit and that you want more of his influence in your life. And as you see him working in your life and helping you put sin to death, he is bearing witness that you are a child of God, that all of those things become evidence I want to encourage you this morning to examine your lives and to say, number one, do I have the spirit of the son indwelling me? Paul uses a bunch of ifs there in verses 9 through 11. If. If you don't, then you're not Christ. If you do, you have everything. The number one thing we need to do is say, do I have the indwelling spirit of the son? Have I trusted in Jesus Christ? Have I come to him? Have I gone to the one who said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your soul. Have you come to the one who said, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Have you come to him? I'm not asking if you know about him intellectually. I'm not asking if you can track with the sermon. I'm asking you, have you come to him? Have you have you fallen on your faces before Jesus Christ and cried out to him for redemption? Because only people that do that are people that know what it is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But he promises that any who believe on him and all who believe on him get the same spirit of adoption. Secondly, I want to encourage you to examine your lives and to say, am I seeking to put all sin to death in my life? Do I hate sin? Do I want sin eradicated from my life? Do I realize what that sin cost the Son of God for me? Um, you know, history, history is replete of examples of multitudes of churches full of people that never do that. They hear the call. They see it in the scriptures. They do absolutely nothing. History is full of churches, of lifeless churches, of churches of people not pursuing holiness. Let me tell you this morning, I don't want this to be a comforting sermon. This is not meant to be completely comforting. This is meant to challenge us to say, am I mortifying sin in my life? That should not be comforting to me unless I see fruit of it in my life. And I see God giving me grace and the desire for it, and I'm praying for it, and I'm pursuing it. And even if I see that, that battle going on, the Spirit is leading me forward. Is he leading you forward in holiness? And then finally, I want to encourage you that if you are in Christ, know that God is your Father and that you'll never be anything but a son or a daughter. 
That's the most beautiful thought in all the world, that if you're in Christ, God is your father, and you will never be cast out. Jesus said a son remains in the house forever, not a servant. So if you have been adopted into God's family, if you have the spirit of the son, God is your father, and the privilege you have, you get to call on the infinite, almighty, infinitely holy God, and you get to say, Father, my father, like a child coming to the most loving and tender parent that they could ever imagine. You know, I know we've talked a lot about God as father on Mother's Day, but I think there's an application here. There's an application that if you're a believer, you have the spirit working the image of the best parents in the world into you. You belong in the most loving home, and you have parents who are committed to your holiness more than you are. It's always been a great thought to me that God is committed to my holiness more than I am, just like I'm committed to Micah, Eli, and Judah's development more than they are. Very imperfectly, God very perfectly is committed to making sure that we are being made into the beautiful image and likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. That's holiness, Christ-likeness. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that we would know the indwelling and the leading and the witness of the Spirit of your Son. We pray, Father, that if any here have never come to you, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would draw them, Father, that you would bring them to a place of seeing that they need the indwelling mortifying Holy Spirit in their life. We pray, Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give those of us who are filled with the Spirit a greater measure. We pray that we would know his influences, freeing us from sin's power and giving us that sweet, comforting assurance that we can cry out, Abba, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.